Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. There was a moon and a street lamp I didn't know I drank such a lot Till I pissed a tequila and a corner The full length of the parking lot Oh, I talked too loose Again, I talked too open and free I pay a high price for my open talking Like you do for your silent mystery Come and talk to me Please talk to me Talk to me, talk to me, Mr. Mystery. Thank you, Joni. So, uh, yeah, that's the plan today is you're going to talk to me. And I'm going to talk to you, too. And that's as far as I've gotten, really. (laughs) Our number today, as it always is, now it's a brand new number. We're just kind of one of the reasons we're doing these shows is we need to kind of break in the new number. It's kind of stiff right now. It has a slightly cardboardy feel to it. We're trying to get it all kind of elasticized. Uh, So the number is uh, 888-720-WNPR. If you're not into the whole alpha numeric thing, then it's 888-720-9677. You may decide what topics you would like to bring up. I'm going to spout out a whole bunch of them uh, if you don't. I mean, the incentive, one of the major incentives to call up is that if you don't, I'll talk more. So think of it that way. Uh, And just to prove that we're really doing this, uh, and this is one where we, we may have to get some uh, caller participation about the call, but we have uh, Jill calling in from North Dakota right now. So uh, we don't get a lot of calls from North Dakota, and I think it's important to take the first one we get today. Um, but we're not restricted to calls from North Dakota. You can call from anywhere. Uh, hi, Jill. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. How are you? Just fine. Um, first of all, I wanted to tell you that, yes, your number is, is uh, brand new. So I, first I dialed 800-720-9466 or 9-whatever-66, yeah. yeah. and I went through it until I got to 888, and, I, <laughs> and here I am. Well, that's, that shows some real persistence, and, and still you persisted. All right. So you have so, the floor. Yeah, so um, I moved to North Dakota from here. I was working at a hospital here. And uh, a lot of things changed, and I said, well, let me try something new. And the long story to short is that I ended up in North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And it's been very nice, but now I decided to retire. Um, I'm I'm done with medicine. And so I want to, my family is still back here, and I kind of miss my family. I don't know if they miss me, but I miss them. (laughs) And, uh, um, I'm trying to decide whether I can come back here. You know, all things point to it's really expensive to live here on a fixed income, on a on a retirement income. Used to be I used to be able to make extra money if things got short, but now I'll be on a fixed income, and it's really scary. Mm-hmm. I hear you. So you're asking, is it possible to live in Connecticut on a fixed income? I mean, this might be right, something. Right. Would, would be uh, first of all, it's not going to be. 
I mean, you're sort of spoiled in a way. I, I, it's the first time I've ever said to somebody that they're spoiled because they live in North Dakota. But you're kind of spoiled because, as you know better than I do, the cost of living down there out there is is considerably lower. Um, Very much lower. Yeah, I mean, everything's cheaper. So let's start there. You know, everything's cheaper. And like when people think of cost of living, they tend to think about housing or gas prices or whatever. But the truth is, exactly. the cost of living is everything. You know, I mean, one reason people are moving out of the Bay Area isn't just because real estate is expensive, but it's because of the $38 hamburger or something. You know, it's like everything chases those higher price points. So, yeah, Connecticut is more expensive. I, I do think, and I'm not going to pry into your finances, so uh, a lot of it will depend you know, on... I'm, I'm an open book. Yeah. You can ask me anything. Um, Even my shoes tie. Right. A lot, you know, I mean, a lot of it depends on, on how much of fixed income you've got and, and you know, where you want to live, where you're willing to live, what things you're willing to give up. Um, one thing that I'm noticing a lot of people doing, for example, is retiring to New Haven now. Now, real estate in New Haven is expensive, more expensive than it's ever been. On the other hand, a lot of people feel figure out they can get a, a, get around without their car pretty well or you know instead of needing two cars as a couple they need only one car i mean you know if you go to a pretty walkable place you can get your driving costs down there's things that you can sure. do uh, to lower to lower some of those expenses but you know a lot of it is it's a complex equation right it's sort of how much money you have and what kind of life you want where what kind of place do you want to be the renting or or buying you know what kind of lifestyle do you want to have there um you know, I don't think it's impossible to live here on a fixed income, but it's hard, and it, a lot of it depends on what your buy-in is too. You know, if you have money that you can put in to buy in a condo and sort of stabilize your housing cost right. a little bit that way, stuff like that. You know, but I'd be interested. You know, yeah, go ahead. I, I had thought. You know, one of the things I had thought of is uh, buying an uh, some sort of form of RV and uh, spending time. You know, in some sort of uh, mobile home, you know, not only yep. a mobile fixed home. I mean, you know, okay, I, I, I want to try, uh, you know, Canterbury for a while. Right. I want to try the New Haven area for a while. I mean, I've never done it before, but I, I'm open to just about anything. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I like that. That's one of the things I like about being retired is the idea that. Anything's possible. I mean, right. I've already lived four, four years away from my family. I know I don't have to be on top of them, although I'd like to be closer. Right. You know, uh, there's not a 1,600-mile drive or an $800. I mean, it's, you know, there's no cheap... No cheap fares to Fargo. Right. So, we, you know, we did um, an entire show about actual mobile home parks, which I know is not what you're talking about doing. Although I think we all agreed afterwards our, the show we did was somewhat flawed or at least imperfect. And, and But there are some really nice mobile home parks around Connecticut that are well-maintained. Uh, but you're talking more about an RV. So then you're going to have to find out what the regs are. You know, are there places where you can right. unmolested park, right. park your RV? So a lot of research. I'm going to just also say that if anybody wants to call in with an opinion, about Jill's question uh, that I'm very open to having that happen. Once again, the number 888-720-WNPR. A lot of people on the board here. Let's go to Levi in West Hartford. Hi. Hi, Colin. Um, I was calling because uh, I've been very disappointed with the new Connecticut uh, plastic bag policy. And uh, I found it to be sort of a continuing pattern of Connecticut sneaking in sort of regressive taxes that uh, are sort of designed to, uh, to 
really disproportionately hurt the poor while not yielding any sort of real tangible gain, even for the environmental concern that they uh, that they were ostensibly for. Um, that uh, I I mean other examples, uh, you know we. Connecticut subsidized the ballet, the theater, all sorts of upper-class entertainment, while uh, we put disproportional taxes on things like cable and uh, low income. Well, I mean, I, I, first of all, I think we're, you're sort of mixing your, your images here. I mean, you know, first of all, we don't subsidize the arts much at all compared to most Western nations, right? I mean, uh, public subsidies to the arts are minuscule in America and and increasingly lower as they get cut again and again in Connecticut. So, I mean, but let's take that one out of the equation and just talk about plastic bags, all right? So, I mean, this is also, though, I mean, one common theme here is a lot of the rest of the world has already managed to do this somehow. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, you, you want to get away from ultimately having the thing where, you know, a lot of people are having to pay uh, small amounts of money for a, an extra plastic bag. Although, I mean, even for the, for the poor, for a poor person, I, I'm thinking this isn't a huge amount, particularly once you get the hang of it and you know to bring your own bags. I've been bringing my own bags like forever. But there are a few things that are worth knowing about this. Just since you brought it up, a couple of th- a few things worth knowing. First of all, you have to decide what you care about with plastic bags. Plastic bags are a petroleum product. It doesn't degrade. Um, we know it gets into the oceans. It winds up in the huge garbage patch of the Pacific Ocean. We know it's dangerous to, to marine mammals and to fish, you know, to have all this plastic out there that can get in their systems and stuff like that. So we know all that about plastic bags, and that's why they're bad. Um, on the other hand, paper bags have a much higher carbon footprint. You would have to use a paper bag, I think, four times before you made it as carbon efficient as a plastic bag. A weird, funny thing about a plastic bag is it's actually the most carbon efficient thing just about. I mean, single-use thing that you could use as a bag. Um, and paper bags are, are not a great deal. They, they really do have a huge carbon footprint, and they produce waste. Paper production produces waste. Plastic bags don't produce that much waste in the production process because they're a petroleum product and nobody likes to waste petroleum. So, I mean, there's sort of a back and forth here. Then the third thing you need to know is cotton is really a terrible thing, all right? So if you're going to go solve this problem by getting a cotton bag, cotton has an incredible impact on the environment when you make when you make cotton when you grow cotton um, and mill cotton it's or whatever you do with cotton anyway there's a huge amount of water that gets gets used a huge amount of pesticides uh, a lot of land that, that goes into cotton production so when they do these things as equations it's like 30 or 35 uses of a cotton bag before you are actually even on even keel in terms of environmental impact or at least uh, carbon footprint and pesticides and all that kind of stuff uh, with a plastic bag. So you have to use your cotton bag a lot. Um, so the best thing to be using is a reusable, you know, bring your own bag, but made out of either recycled plastic or nylon or something like that, uh, that you're going to use for, you know, a couple of years, something like that. Now, the key to, to doing this is you throw them in your car assuming that you use your car when you go shopping, all right? So when, whenever your plastic bag is available, uh, you, you, know, you throw it in your car. Uh, and you keep in the back of your car five or six of these sort of shopping bags. And so, because that, that's the problem is you don't always know when you're going to the store and you go to the store and you realize you don't have your bags with you. So whenever your uh, bags are available, 
Whenever you're done with them, you unpack them in your kitchen. Then you take them down and you put them in your car so you don't forget. Uh, and then once you do that, you know, it doesn't take too long before it just becomes sort of an ingrained habit. Uh, and and also there's other stuff that you can get bags made out of that's kind of a little bit more renewable. And I'm sure there's someone who's going to call me up about hemp because you can never talk about anything without somebody calling up about hemp. But um, – but, I mean, ultimately, all right, so Levi, I mean, ultimately, we have to decide, do we care about the environment or not? Are we going to do anything about these problems? Are we bothered by the huge trash, trash patch in the Pacific Ocean? You know, I mean, are we going to deal with these things or not? And if we're going to deal with them, yeah, it's, there's going to be some pain. How about that? Well, um, I, according to uh, the uh, UK's environmental agency report that I read, the uh, cotton bags and other that are even worse than the numbers you gave. Uh, yeah. that I'm having a hard time hearing you, but I think you're just saying what I'm saying. Cotton, cotton don't get a cotton bag. You're going to get a, like a, a bag that you're going to take to the grocery store. Get a bag that's made out of some sort of, you know, basically kind of woven plastic material. Um, if it's made out of recycled plastic, that's really good. And you can get those at like Whole Foods and I, you can get them at Stop and Shop. I think they even will sell you. For a, you know, a small amount of money, a permanent shopping bag you keep in your car all the time. All right, so 888-720-WNPR. Um, well, listen, since somebody is calling in about Jill's call, I think this is – I like the idea of, the, of, the, of crowdsourcing people's problems. So here's Debbie in Massachusetts. Hi, Debbie. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm actually on the road in Connecticut heading towards Massachusetts. Okay. I want to address Jill's um, idea of um, RVing. Uh, my husband and I just sold our RV. We lived in it for four years full-time mm-hmm. after selling our house in 2015 in Massachusetts. And she better do a lot of research because it's getting more and more expensive to be on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, think about gasoline. If you've got a gas-powered RV or a diesel-powered, um, if you're towing a car, because if you get your RV, you know you get a, a Class B, which is like a big van, then you don't need to tow a car. But if you want to live permanently, you don't want to every day you want to go out and get groceries or however you want to do it, Uber. Uh, it's hard to, to maneuver um, that RV just to go to groceries. So there's a lot to think about how mobile or how permanent you want to be. Um, trying to solve some of her problems, I, I don't know what she has for finances, but she might want to consider getting a container and, and uh, outfitting that. Um, some of them... I don't know if you're familiar with that, but a lot in the um, warmer climate, they're, they're really um, an economical way to live if you can get a cheaper piece of land yeah. and get it plumbed and electrical lines. But, and, um, and so you live yeah. in, a, in a container? Oh, there's some great containers that uh, you can put two of them together, the tiny homes. Well, well, yeah, I know, no, I, I know all about the tiny house movement. I'm wondering, I mean, all these things, okay. they got to be a code. you got to get a CEO, stuff like that. I'm just sort of wondering. Connecticut does tend to have a lot of rules. I, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can live right. in, a, but, in a container in Connecticut. But, but even uh, if she wants to live in the wintertime in an RV, that's, uh, that's, that, that'll be tricky. Yeah. I, don't, I personally do not. Them. I don't want Jill living in an RV. I, I've become very proprietary about Jill. And uh, yep. <laughs> I, although I know she wants to have adventures, too, you can hear it in her voice. She wants to be the person in her family and her circle of friends who is willing to try something that doesn't have like an automatic safety net. You can just sort of hear that in her. And she's a free spirit. And I love that about her. But I just I, I don't I for all the reasons that you're saying, Debbie, I worry about the RV. Oh, I absolutely. Um 
we decided that we had done uh, four years enough in the, on the road, and we just spent three months in England, basically for free, because I found an app that uh, we sat in five different locations and watched people's pets in their homes oh. while they went on holiday. You should write so a book. I mean, th- this is, you, you, you gotta, you're you living the freegan lifestyle. All right. So uh, I got to go, though. I got to keep moving on here. Betsy Kaplan is very strict about how long I talk to any given caller. Oh, it's too bad Elle hung up. Elle was also going to talk about retiring uh, to Connecticut. I think she was pro-retiring to Connecticut. Uh, number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-WNPR. PR. Uh, why don't we go to Jenna in Southington? Hi, Jenna. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Good. I am calling because uh, this is sort of a topic related to retiring in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I just came from an amazing rehearsal of a. Whoop. Where'd she go? Where'd she go? What happened? What happened? Oh, no. Something bad happened here. All right. So we'll see if we can fix that up. Okay. Jenna, call back. I don't know what happened to you, but you disappeared. Uh, all right, so uh, here's L in New Haven, the aforementioned L. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Okay, okay, hi. So I am a 58-year-old woman who lives in New Haven, and I really think living out of state may be a little bit overrated. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that, I have people in my life who are 80, 75, they still fly back for their medical treatment. Mm-hmm. They're always coming back, even when there's no treatment, like a doctor's appointment. And I think home is weird. The heart is, I think, even though they've packed up to go to a place cheaper, yep. I think culturally they're northerners. Right. And some of them will tell me that the hardest thing is that if you don't drive, you can't really like do certain things. So it's great when you're able to drive, but as you or you can't drive, that becomes a complication. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them struggle culturally, knowing that you're you're more of a northerner. Yeah. There may be a place that you go down south. And also, Connecticut has a statewide government, mm-hmm. which really can make a difference. I've had people tell me different experiences just by the fact that they live in a different county in Georgia, yeah. what kind of treatment they get. Um, as a black woman, I have more people of color tell me well, they don't trust the doctors. They feel a certain way. They don't feel they're going to get treated the same way as they would if they go to a Yale, if they go to the doctors in Connecticut. So it's always that weird conversation I have with them. They can't pinpoint it, but all of them will say if they could afford their house, the house that they have where they're at, mm-hmm. they said that they could never afford it. But at the same time, in their heart, I've had a couple of people tell me that they would relocate and come back to Connecticut and I think that is the thing, like it, the cost of living may seem cheaper, but in the long run, you can't be in New York. You can't be in Rhode Island, um, up north for like a weekend. You can't do those things that you can do here. Right. I think the utilities are outrageous in Connecticut. Hmm. I'm still working, but my struggle is not my mortgage. I'm nervous about paying my mortgage off in a certain amount of time because my question is how could I even afford a mortgage that's lower with the rate of the utilities that I pay. It's that's a, my dilemma, the utilities. It's a really good point, and I think it's a lot of what people talk about when they talk about cost of living. But that was a, it's a great call, and thank you for saying all of that, because I think there's a lot of truth there. You, people think that they can just transplant their lives to Florida or Georgia or South Carolina, uh, and you're not going to move your life there. You're going to move there, but all the things that you knew and all of the maybe the values that you took for granted may not be there, and plus they get worse hurricanes, so as we're finding out. Uh, here's Jenna. I'm, we got Jenna back. Hi, Jenna. So you want to tell, tell us about a play, right? 
I do, I do. And it's connected to retiring in Connecticut because there's all sorts of people who are aging in Connecticut. So this rehearsal of a script that I just came from was of five people who are living in Connecticut who are living with early, uh, early in their stage of Alzheimer's or a form of dementia. And this is a script that they've created and that they're performing to invite people to a conversation of how do you live well? Mm-hmm. And be resilient versus, um, you know, the the only the conversation that happens behind closed doors. So how do we become a part of a, of a whole uh, national initiative to become dementia friendly? Um, and so they'll be performing at Asylum Hill Congregational Church on October second at six thirty, um, and you can. Um, Go on to the livewell.org li- uh, website mm-hmm. and click on the Eventbrite. It's free, um, but it's a it's an amazing opportunity to become a part of a a larger conversation about aging. Let um, me talk about our need for transportation in Connecticut. People who are living with um, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementias often stop driving. And um, as a part of retirement, like, what do you do then? And how do we create infrastructures in Connecticut with people instead of just thinking for people? Yeah, that's a good, and, that's all. First of all, uh, does this play have a title? Do we know the title? It of the does. Yeah. Uh, so it's called To Whom I May Concern. To Whom I May Concern. Oh, I like the title. Well, first of all, this is a great tip. And I should say, uh, we're getting more and more interesting, uh, interested in some of these aging questions uh, here at the station, partly because some of us are aging, but also because right. our population is aging. And I'm going to... Um, recommend this play also. We've got some people working on a, a future project here at this company that'll have to do with aging. I'm working on a forum oh. about aging that's going to happen at Watkinson in April of 2020. Uh, nice. So I'm interested in all this stuff, Jenna. And uh, the, boy, the play sounds... I hope you'll include somebody who's living with some form of cognitive change. I think that would be really an interesting thing to do. Absolutely. Thanks for calling. That's terrific. Uh, all right. So I think I have to take a break. Don't you think so, Betsy Kaplan, that we need a break? I think so. So uh, the number... Although a lot of the lines are full, but it's 888-720-WNPR. We'll take a break and we shall return. One of the uh, interesting things about today's show is that women are calling up. Sometimes you do – women tend to be more reluctant to call a lot of talk shows uh, than men do. We've done a lot of other shows like this where I look at the board and it's all men's names. So it's good. Women are calling up today. That's good. We endorse that idea. Uh, all right. Uh, let me ta- start with uh, Judy in Middletown. Um, oh, wait a minute. Sharon's been waiting the longest. Let's do Sharon first. Although I think I'm, I have less of an intelligent thing to say uh, back to Sharon, but that doesn't, I shouldn't stop Sharon. Uh, hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. It's Sharon. Yes. I'm a longtime listener and appreciate the opportunity to call. Just, um, it seems like everybody's got housing on the brain. Mm-hmm. My husband and I have been commenting about how it seems that every town we drive through nowadays has got either a a 55 and older active adult community or some kind of huge senior apartments for wealthy seniors being built everywhere in Connecticut. We're very much middle class. We're both 68, been retired for a couple of years. Um, I don't have a $500,000 home that I can sell to afford uh, one of these assisted living contract places or one of these high-end $3,000 a month for a studio at Blueback Square. 
what I'm looking for is just a place for your average middle-class senior citizen in Connecticut who doesn't want to be isolated from other generations, maybe a multi-generational accessible housing project or something like that. So there's so many smart people in our state. Why can't we get it together and plan this for our aging population? I mean, it's a really great great question. I wish I had a, an intelligent thing to say back other than that, that kind of housing, I feel as though, used to exist. And the more it became, as you're suggesting, intensely profitable to develop kind of high-end housing, uh, expensive housing for seniors, obviously that's going to be more attractive to developers. It's going to have, right. to, it's going to, have to be an affirmative public policy affordable housing for middle-income seniors has to be made a goal. Uh, and, there, you know, it, it may be something that can be done as part of state housing policy, but I'm guessing town by town, too. You know, ultimately, if people have an allegiance to their towns, and, and that's a problem, right. too, in Connecticut. The towns right. are so damn small. It's like, you know, do you want to live in Newington your entire life, or do you care if it's West Hartford? Most people don't. And I think the towns care less and less. I think there was probably a time, for example, my grandmother lived in Plainville for quite a long part of her life, and she moved into very affordable Plainville senior housing when the time to do that came. And people kind of did stay in towns, and it made sense for the town's housing authorities to develop housing, senior housing that people could afford. I wonder part of the problem is that people are just a lot more transient and that whole notion of being able to stay in the town you were living in is less of a priority to both the consumer and to the town elders making policy. Well, I think people are more transient, but I also think if you look at all this this high-end housing, it's hard to believe that there's that many seniors out there that are going to be able to afford this type of housing. So I don't know if it has to come from the ground up, from the town level, or if we need the governor to set some kind of a housing initiative. But um, I really hope something happens. I think it's going to be a little late for me at 68, but hopefully for my kids. <laughs> right. Um, well, meanwhile, people just have to get crafty. Like, it's kind of like we go back to Jill and we go back to people talking about, well, actually, she'll, well, that's, well, she's, yeah, it, it, just because it fits here, let's, um, let's do this call. This is Betsy in West Haven. Hi, Betsy. Hi. How are you? Good. Okay. So I came here from New Mexico to take mm. care of my father. Uh, in 2012, he went down to Florida with the rest of my family, and I was left here to manage his house. And I'm doing that, and it's okay, <laughs> but, you know, Connecticut is a heck of a lot more expensive than New Mexico. And one of the things I've been looking into is uh, tiny houses. Mm-hmm. Like your first caller. Yep. And I I do really love Connecticut. I was here, I went to college here at UB in, in Bridgeport. And I I really would love to do a more nomadic thing with the rest of my life. I'm in the early sixties and the tiny house is something that I that I've been thinking you know, looking at. There's nothing in and I haven't done a lot of research, but a little, to find a place to put it in Connecticut. Right. 
So not a lot of developable land, first of all. Um, and yeah, the movement hasn't really sort of taken hold here, at least not that I'm aware of. We've, so we certainly, years and years ago, did a show about uh, tiny houses, about the tiny house movement. But we were mostly talking to people in other states. It just seems to have taken off more there. Connecticut often is slow to adopt new ideas. So, uh, But you know, Betsy, maybe somebody will call in who has some familiarity with some kind of tiny house uh, operation here in Connecticut, or at least some way to do the whole tiny house thing here in Connecticut. Somebody who knows more than I do, which would be almost anybody. Um, hey, before I take another call, let me just tell you a little bit about this week. It's sort of a weird week here on the show. First of all, you should know, if you care, that uh, today we are beginning the second decade of the Colin McEnroe show. So somewhere, according to Jonathan McNichol, who keeps track of these things, somewhere like when we got done with our show on Friday afternoon, basically our first decade on the air ended. Uh, So we're beginning a new decade now. And partly because of that and partly just by accident, we just have a lot of weird things going on this week. Not even including this show. Um, but so two, the two things that are going to happen is we're going to do a show on Thursday to kind of commemorate the fact that we've done more than 2,000 shows already, 2,000 episodes. And all every single one of those episodes was about something, you know, about a topic or about a bunch of topics or, you know, in this case, people calling up about things. But we've never done a show that was not about something. And so we decided to see if we could do that, if we could do a show that was not about a specific topic. So you'll hear more about that as the week <laughs> goes on. But it's, it's our f- most zen koan show ever. And the other thing, we've been working for like three or four years to do an interview with Jimmy Webb, the guy who wrote Wichita Lineman, um, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Up, Up, and Away, MacArthur Park, um, a bunch of other American kind of pop classics. And... And he's always been interested, and we have kind of a little conduit to him because we know his wife. Uh, she's worked here in the building at times, and we've just never been able to put it together. But uh, this week we are going to go to Long Island, to a studio in Long Island, and do a full interview with Jimmy Webb. So uh, that won't get on the air this week, but it'll be a reason why we have to maybe put an extra re- rerun on the air this week because this is going to be a, a big lift uh, to go to where we have to go and to get back and to do everything we have to do in the middle. So anyway, just bear with us. Bear with us this week. It's going to be a crazy week, both intentionally and perhaps unintentionally. All right. So let's go back to the phones here. I've got some people who have been waiting a while. Uh, we'll, we got some more housing calls, and we'll swing back to those. But uh, Judy has been waiting. Hi, Judy in Middletown. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I'm one of those uninsured people. I'm underinsured people, and um, I often wonder um, my doctor had been bought up by this affiliate pro-physicians, and uh, pro-physicians I know works with some of the insurance companies to um, allow certain things and uh, not allow certain things. For instance, I, I can't ask a question during my wellness visit or I'll get charged, um, which actually happened. Um, I asked, yeah, I had, um, as a wellness visit, you get a simple blood test and when I asked if, if I had dry eye or dry mouth, if that was usual for someone my age, I was told that I, it wasn't under, um, pro-physicians would not allow that. Otherwise, it would have to be a regular um, office visit, be charged as a regular office visit rather than be um, as my... Good as Lord. My <laughs> yeah, I know. That's I was cr- really... That's and psycho. I had been go- and I had been going to them for 20 years. 
right. they did that to me. So I oh, that you you first of all obviously you are underinsured and that that's a terrible plan that you're on if that's what they think a wellness visit is and shame on them. Right. But I mean right. I think part of the problem is that um, one of the reasons that you're having the problem that you're having one of the reasons that our system doesn't work. This is my theory anyway and it's heavily infor- informed by and I do recommend this book to everybody. I've recommended it so many times you'd think I'd be getting a cut by now. Uh, but uh, it's by Elizabeth Rosenthal. It's called. American sickness. Uh, it's about what's wrong with our healthcare system. And one of the things that's wrong with our healthcare system is that nobody's really in control of it. And so your doctor doesn't, I mean, depending on what kind of system you're in, I, I don't know how this pro physician thing works, but, you know, uh, doctors often don't know what procedures cost. They have no idea. In fact, there was a really interesting thing that was done, and I think we might have even had him on at one point. There was a member of Congress, I think he might have been from Iowa, but I'm not sure, who I think he himself was a doctor, and he decided to drop his congressional health coverage. They have obviously gold plated, high end. Uh, health coverage. He decided to drop that and have no insurance and then find out what things cost. Uh, And he discovered, first of all, that many of the places he went didn't know what something cost. They only knew what various insurance companies would reimburse it for. But what does an MRI really cost? What would they charge an MRI if there's somebody standing there with some cash or a credit card willing to pay directly for it? They just, they had no experience with that. They didn't know what it cost. Uh, And that's very typical. I mean, that's Part of the problem is that there isn't a coherent system that you can look at. And, you you know, one of the arguments, I think, for single payer is at least everybody would be under the same plan. So, you know, Judy's under a different plan than I'm under and I'm under a different plan from somebody else. These are all reimbursing different things at different rates and creating different models for reimbursement. And we're in this really patchwork system where individual patients have wildly different economic experiences with the healthcare system. And one of the things that the system cries for is standardization. I mean, it's also true that when they study it geographically, certain procedures are used and prescribed per capita at much higher rates depending on what part of the country you're in. I mean, it's crazy stuff like that. Although Judy's thing was one of the craziest things I've ever heard. You can't ask questions about your things going on with your body during your wellness visit, that is psycho. All right. So, um, but I mean, ultimately, either, I mean, single payer would be, you know, the best thing probably, but a public option, you know, even that would probably give the Judy's of this world a better choice than what they're being given right now. Um, I'm thrilled that it's so much a part of the democratic conversation this year, and it's so much a part of the debates. Uh, it's it's tough for any of these candidates, I think, to get through this process to the nomination without having some kind of coherent position on healthcare. Um, and th- that's this is the first election cycle I've seen where that has really been the case. Uh, all right, our number one triple eight seven two zero WNPR. What does she think I should do? I'm going to go to CJ in Old Lyme. Hi, CJ. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Uh, First of all, congrats on all those years of shows. Um, I love your new program format, though. I like this call-in show. Okay. Um, Okay. So I have, uh, first I want to preface what I say with, to let everybody know I have great respect for all our police, fire, EMTs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. However, this has to do with a fire department um, campaign called Fill the Boot. 
Yeah, it's for muscular yeah, muscular dystrophy, right? I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Usually, However, the, the, yeah, the fill the boot campaigns are usually for the uh, Muscular Dystrophy Association, MDA. Okay, so here's my issue. Um, it, it, for me, it's a road vehicle safety issue. Uh, down on Route 156 here, where O-Line meets East Line, yep. they've done several this year. It's right where the exit for Rocky Neck is, so people coming off of I-95 go can't can't get on the road Mm -hmm. uh they've made the lanes the fire department has created an extra lane so there's like four lanes of traffic instead of three and my issue is not that it inconveniences me like (laughs) town hall board of selectmen person just said suggested to me It, it it impedes traffic it causes traffic disruption and uh, people I've talked to locally, the police department in East Lyme has said, oh, no, it's not their purview. They have nothing to do with it. The, the town hall has told me, oh, no, they have nothing to do with it. But maybe I should talk to the local fire marshal. Uh, the selectman this morning told me, well, maybe I should talk to DOT. But he's just they're just not concerned with my problem of being a safety issue. Why do it? right off the highway on busy weekends like Fourth of July and Labor Day and before Labor Day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They probably do it because they get more people uh, involved. But, you know, I, I hear you. I feel your pain. Um, on the other hand, it's like a day, right? You know, and if you know it's coming, you can make, maybe make a plan so you get done whatever you need to get done before they start up. I don't know. I was just talking to one of my sort of one of my coworkers here at the building who was who lives not too far from the Haddam Neck Fair and usually goes away on Labor Day weekend, so she doesn't have to deal with it. And this time, you know, it was it's a huge hassle. It's a big fair, and there's little tiny roads in this very rural area. But you know it's coming. If you know it's coming, as long as they give you lots of warning, you know, maybe you can just sort of plan your life so you're not inconvenienced. Because you hate to tell the fire department don't raise money to fight muscular dystrophy. I mean, that doesn't feel good, right? So anyway, we got to take a break here. A lot of people calling in. I had all this stuff that I wanted to say, but now these people... They want to talk. I guess that's sort of the idea, though, right? Uh, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. We will be back. My ears are glued to the radio for my favorite call-in show. What's my opinion? You want to know who you're going to have to listen Got to thank people. Um, uh, Kion Wolf's on the board here, making it all sound great and getting the music on the air and getting, well, it all is making us just uh, sound good. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is our senior producer, is uh, producing this episode. She's actually screening calls herself. So here's the thing. Like Betsy Kaplan, because she's very conscientious and she feels really guilty if she's not working all the time, she's prepared me with all kinds of topics to bring up today, uh, ranging from, obviously, President Trump thinking that he's never seen a Category 5 hurricane before, when he has, uh, or like he says he's never heard of that or something when he has uh, West Texas shootings. Is there going to be any kind of death penalty, any kind of um, gun control other than just making it easier to impose the death penalty? Are we going to actually ever have true 
uh, firearms reform as a result of one of these horrible shootings. Uh, uh, Vice President Pence is staying in a Trump hotel on the west coast of Ireland, even though he's going to meetings in Dublin on the east coast of Ireland. Uh, and this, of course, raises questions about also whether the president is once again enriching himself by booking government business into his hotels. Uh, there's a school in Nashville banning Harry Potter books. It's not the school that Carmen Baskoff went to, I guarantee you. Uh, and, uh, well, stuff from the U.S. Tennis Open, the amazing scene uh, between Na- Naomi Osaka uh, and uh, Coco, Go- Coco Goff uh, when Naomi was consoling the 15-year-old Coco who had lost a critical match. Since then, Naomi, I think, has also lost uh, out of the tournament. So all of these things, these are all preparations that Betsy Kaplan has made for the show today, but we don't need them because you're all calling up and you have things that you want to talk about. All right, here we go. 888-720-WNPR. Uh, here's Bob, who has been waiting a long time in Clinton. But at least he's in Clinton, and that's a nice place to be waiting. You're on the air, Bob. Hey, uh, thanks for having the show. It's wonderful. I have uh, an idea for a cartoon. If I were a, po- a political cartoonist, I'd do it myself. But uh, there's uh, our president uh, grabbing the Statue of Liberty off its foundation and throwing it into the uh, ocean. Um, I think that it's a, a terrible thing. Uh, on the um, statue, as everyone may recall, uh, it says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And uh, that's my comment there. All right. Well, thanks for that comment. You scared me. Anytime you talk about President Trump grabbing the figure of a woman, I'm always worried about where it's going. Uh, But you didn't go there. And I'm perversely grateful to you. So um, I just want to say one thing about that, too, which is I think one of the more undercovered stories, it's hard to figure out what the undercovered stories about President Trump are. Because there are so many stories about President Trump. But this story about how he is, uh, first of all, he's panicking right now because he can't, apropos of what Bob was just talking about, he's panicking now because the wall is not getting built. And, it, you know, he needs, he needs it visibly, plausibly built as he heads into a, the 2020 election season. He's not even close. Not only is he not only even close, but he keeps suggesting modifications or ordering modifications that make things take longer. It's got to be painted a certain shade of matte black so it'll get hot. Uh, He wants spikes at the top, which is a completely useless, pointless thing. But he wants spikes because he likes the way they look. Um, So that's actually taking longer. But anyway, the story that I think is a big story is that uh, they are going to have to do uh, takings of land. They're going to have to use eminent domain to take land for this wall. Uh, And first of all, which is like a real kind of counter-Republican thing, you know, I mean, the counter-conservative. Conservative philosophy doesn't like the idea of the government taking land uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. But also reports that he said to his aides, if you get in trouble, just do it. If you get in trouble, I'll pardon you, which he's, they're now trying to say was a joke. And I like what David Plotz said on, on the Slate Political Gab Fest if you're the president, you're sort of not allowed to joke about things like that. And anyway, he says a lot of really transgressive stuff and then claims he said it with a wink. And I, I don't even think he was saying that. with a, I mean, that alone would be grounds for impeachment in a normal universe. 
Plus the fact there's this big Republican donor who, speaking of Jill in North Dakota, is grinding his senator, U.S. Senator uh, Ken Kramer, uh, to get some of the contracts for this. Kramer's been down along the border trying to help out this guy who's given him a lot of campaign money over the years. I mean, that's all a very unattractive spectacle as well. Uh, but anyway, so our number, 888-720-WNPR. Not sure what... Betsy Kaplan wants me to do right now, but I'll go, I'll try going to Michael in Mansfield. I'll see what happens. Hi, Michael, you're on the air. Uh, Michael, you there? Uh, oh. Yes, I believe so. There you go. I, I believe you were on the air too. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I watched the video that uh, Bradley Manning had released showing uh, a U.S. helicopter with a machine gunner, uh, machine gunning a number of people in the streets of Iraq, uh, including one reporter who was not a terrorist, and subsequently uh, machine gunning the ambulance that came to pick up the wounded. And I was wondering, was he ever brought to justice under the military code? The the gunner, not to my, I don't I don't know the answer to that question, but not to my knowledge, it does seem as though they were much more eager to prosecute Bradley or Chelsea Manning than they were the people who were revealed in that drop. By the way, I think that Chelsea Manning is back in prison, and this is like another story that doesn't get covered. I think that having served one set of prison time and gotten out, Chelsea Manning has been re-imprisoned and is imprisoned now even as I speak. I think that's true anyway. Don't hold me to that if there's been a new development in the case. Hey, you know, one of the things that I wanted to just quickly mention, and obviously we'll have to get to it on another day, is, you know, obviously we've been through this very weird summer where there have been all these candidates for president, so many candidates for president on the Democratic side. And now, of course, a few Republican challengers as well. Um, But it's actually, I think, sorting itself out. And the question is, is it sorting itself out in the right way? Um, what we're, you know, Politico has a big story today saying, well, you know, really it's sort of Warren, Sanders and Biden are really at the top in a way that nobody else is close. They're the only ones who are in double digits. Everybody else is in single digits. The next two close, the next closest two candidates are, are Buttigieg and uh, Kamala Harris. Um, and that if it's not one of those, it would take a miracle for it to not be one of those five you know, that no matter how many other subsidiary candidates there are. And although I happen to be a big Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren fan, and if I had to cast my primary vote tomorrow, I would definitely vote for Elizabeth Warren. I think that whole idea that they're the top three is a little weird and restrictive. I'm, I would be surprised if you don't see some reordering of that. First of all, it's so early. I mean, Iowa isn't until February of next year. That's when the Iowa caucus is. So, I mean, that whole idea anyway that, oh, well, it's those three and maybe those other two, I don't think that that's entirely true. And I especially don't think it's just those three because they are all rather, you know, on the old side, which is fine. I mean, as long as their faculties are fully functioning, which I think is an open question about Biden, but it's an open question about Biden whether his faculties were ever fully functioning. but I, my guess is that the Democratic electorate is going to want one younger choice to stay in there for quite a while, for quite a large part of the process, whether it's Harris or Buttigieg or somebody else. Um, 
I, I, I think that you will probably see that. I think if there's just any kind of invisible hand sorting this thing out, some political marketplace sorting this out, they'll keep a, a younger person in there. And then the other story that kind of is not being covered about this field or just starting to be covered, you know, <laughs> and I know, I know, I know what you're thinking when I say Andrew Yang. But, you know, Andrew Yang has the sixth highest polling average. So after those five names I just gave you, the next person in terms of polling average, and I think at about at a 2.6, which is not a lot. That's not, a, you know, that's not a lot. But like way ahead of, you know, people like Klobuchar, who I think is somewhere around 0.9. I mean, some of the other people who are talked about as uh, Castro, I think is at 1%, something like that. So Andrew Yang is substantially ahead uh, of a lot of the people who are conventional politicians who get named, you know, as second or third tier, but not completely ruled out candidates. And just in terms of exposure and coverage and stuff like that, he's you know really not getting that much coverage. Uh, all right, so I mean, I've been babbling, but I wanted to get that off my chest. Let me go to Susan and Charlie, and that'll probably be the end of the show. Uh, Susan from Mystic, you're on the air. Um, hey, I have a question for you. Yep. I'm wondering if there have ever been term limits for members of Congress, and if not, why not? And uh, is it possible to change that? I think that, uh, I mean, uh, I believe their terms are set in the Constitution. So, I mean, you can change anything, but you, it's very difficult to amend the Constitution. Um, so I, I've come around to the idea of term limits. I used to oppose them. Uh, it's actually something that I've, I've changed my opinion about. I believe that at the, at the state level, and I believe it at the national level, too. Um, but, um, I, you know, not to keep quoting David Platts, but he, they had a terrific political gabfest uh, podcast last week. And one of the things that he said is we now have this constitutional system that's dysfunctioning on any number of levels. I mean, first of all, there's a way in which the House and the Senate are so completely divided and, and so self-seeking and the presidency is self-seeking. And even the Supreme Court operates kind of for its own, you know, on its own agenda as opposed to any kind of national consensus. Uh, and the electoral college uh, produces counter-majoritarian results and, and on and on and on. We have like a system that really is, was created by 55 white guys, 54 of them Protestants, meeting in secret and day drinking. And we're stuck with this document, which is now almost impossible to amend as well. We have a system that's, that's gridlocked because of the structure of it. Um, particularly the overrepresentation of certain people by the U.S. Senate, um, and you can't fix it. You can't fix anything about it because it is virtually impossible at this point to amend the Constitution. Um, so on that dark note, <laughs> our government doesn't work and we can't fix it. Uh, we'll stop, but thanks for calling in today. Thanks again to Kion and to Betsy Kaplan, uh, and we'll be back tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until somebody makes us stop. <laughs> 